So let me just kind of paint the picture for you, because it's a long passage, and I want to just kind of give you the outline of what happens, and then I'm going to read the passage to you. So we are here uh, about 10 days after Jesus has ascended to be with the Father. So after his resurrection, he spends some time with the disciples, 40 days, then about 10 days, they are waiting for this moment. And he tells them, and this is what we looked at a couple of weeks ago, to go to Jerusalem and wait, for there they will be clothed in power. So we find them doing just that, praying in the upper room, waiting for this moment. And it is the Feast of Pentecost, so named because it is 50 days after the Passover festival, and it is a feast of a harvest celebration. It was kind of the beginning of the harvest season and the moment when they kind of celebrated the harvest. Um, and so the, the Jews from the diaspora, the ones who didn't live in Jerusalem, would kind of return. So Jerusalem would swell with numbers. Lots more people were in Jerusalem than normal. So we, any, different commentators estimate up to about 200,000 people are in Jerusalem. And we find ourselves in the upper room, and the disciples are praying, and we see them filled with the Spirit. And there are some remarkable manifestations of the Spirit's work in them. They see kind of uh, as if flames, tongues of fire over their heads. And something happens, and, and it's not exactly clear, but essentially the disciples make their way out of the upper room. And we find them probably in the temple complex, because that's probably the only place in Jerusalem that was big enough to um, kind of take what we then see. And we see uh, essentially what's happening is the 120, that is the apostles and the kind of those who are following Christ at the time, are in the temple complex, and they are praising God and declaring his majestic works. And they are doing it in different tongues, in different languages. And these are the different languages of the people who are in the crowd listening to them. So a crowd of diaspora Jews from different nations uh, kind of is drawn to the temple by this kind of great commotion that is being produced by the disciples, all praising God. It's a kind of bewildering scene as, they, as they're all speaking in different languages. But they are drawn to this moment. The, the crowd is drawn. And Peter then takes a moment really to show them that everything that's going on has already been prophesied, already been planned by God over the hundreds and thousands of years before this moment. And in doing so, Peter really proclaims the lordship of Christ, saying everything that they see is really a result of God's reign, of Christ's reign, should we say. After his resurrection, Christ is reigning at the right hand of the Father. And he ultimately calls the crowd to repentance. And there's something of a mini revival. Thousands of people turn to Christ and are baptized. And we don't know where. Maybe it's the pool of Siloam, the pool of Bethesda, or the ritual uh, cleansing baths that would have been around there. But there's kind of a mass baptism, a mass turning to Christ. And it's a really profound moment that I think should shape us as the people of God even if we're not going to recreate exactly what we see in this moment, there is a call for the people of God to carry something of the ethos, the pattern that is set for us in this moment. So let me read to you chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were together, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. 
and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. The crowd is drawn in. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and prophesites, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. It's only 9 a.m. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Some of these in the crowd would have been there and seen Jesus' miraculous works. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs, the pain of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and he's quoting now Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is on my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also would dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter says, he can't be talking about himself. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne... He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, 
that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Saying Jesus spoke through David when he wrote that psalm about the fact that he would never see destruction and death. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, the Father said to the Son, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and and said to Peter with the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is a profound moment. But I imagine some of you, as you hear that story, may be slightly bewildered. You know, the crowd are kind of bewildered. They're saying, what's going on? Some of us are kind of with the crowd in this moment. I imagine some of you who aren't Christians are thinking, what are you talking about, this Holy Spirit? And in a sense, I can't do it justice, give you the full picture. But what I would say to you who are coming in who aren't Christians, this is why Christians say that we have encountered someone when we talk about becoming a Christian. When you think about Christianity, it's not just that we've come to believe certain ideas about God. It's not that God is just kind of a theoretical concept. It's that we have had an encounter with the living God and that he has changed us as a result. And this this idea of the Holy Spirit gives some, some basis for why we say that, to say that God has come and entered into our lives. I'm aware, though, for some of you, this whole idea of the Holy Spirit is, is heavy and complex, and I want to try to unpack some of the, the kind of mystery and the ideas behind it, um, behind him this evening. So what's going on, then, in this moment? Well, really, what you've got to see is this is a kind of epoch-defining moment. This is a moment where something has changed. It's kind of like a line in the sand. It's the beginning of what we might call the age of the Spirit, as the Holy Spirit is poured upon his people. The church is assembled. Remember elsewhere in the New Testament, the church is described as the temple of God. The people of God are described as a temple. And it's like the temple is being filled with the Spirit. There's a moment in 1 Kings where Solomon constructs the temple and he brings the ark into the temple and the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, comes and descends in that temple. And this is kind of like what's going on in this moment. The church is being assembled in public before the crowds in Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit is filling the people of God. So it's the beginning of something. It's not just this moment. It becomes the epoch of the Spirit as all people who call on Christ can then receive and experience the work of the Spirit in their lives. So it's the beginning of the age of the Spirit. But it also begins something of the public witness of the church. 
Remember two weeks ago when we looked at this, Christ promised the disciples that they would be his witnesses, and eventually his witnesses to the very end of the earth. And in a sense, this moment is the beginning of that fulfillment of that promise. As the different nations, the Jews who've been residing in places like Iran and Iraq and Turkey and Crete and Rome and Arab people, Jews from all sorts of different places have gathered into Jerusalem. In this moment, the church is born. And there's a kind of very public announcement of the church as the crowd are gathered into the people of God. So this is a one-time moment. Some people call this the birth of the church. But it's not just a one-time moment. You see, they also establishes something of a pattern for us to follow. You see, our aim is not to recreate this moment. And we don't, actually, as you go on through the book of Acts, you'll see that's not what the disciples do. Actually, the, word, the Holy Spirit is poured out in all sorts of different ways and different manifestations. It would be wrong to focus on the kind of outward externals of what's going on and to try and recreate that. It's kind of almost a tragedy that most people think of Pentecost and they think mostly about the idea of the gift of tongues rather than actually seeing the, the heart of what is going on. And that is a declaration of Christ's reign, the evidence of that reign as he pours out his Spirit and a confrontation with the culture that calls this nation back to God. That is ultimately what's going on in this moment. And so I want to challenge us as a people of God really to say, what does it mean to be shaped by this event? And I want to give you three ideas that define ultimately the posture of the people of God if we are to take Pentecost seriously. The first is that we might be a people who pursue the work of the Holy Spirit. Just as we see the announcement and the demonstration of the Holy Spirit being poured out on the people of God, so too, if we are to grow up to be mature, that is our longing for the people of God, that we would grow in maturity, that we would have something of a, a depth to our understanding of what it means to follow Christ, part of that maturity means understanding the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. So that's the first thing I want to do. The second thing is, I've said this is a moment of declaration of Christ's ongoing reign. Peter is absolutely clear to the people of Jerusalem, you, ha you must see that he is indeed the Lord and the Christ, and that he is orchestrating what's going on, that he is the one pouring out his spirit on the people. So too then, if we are people who take Pentecost seriously, we are to be people who live under and declare the reign of Christ with our lives. In a world where many do not recognize the reign of Christ, to take this seriously, he says, no, we want to show that Christ is reigning. I'll unpack that for you. And then thirdly, this should provoke us to be a people who long for and pray for revival. Now, some of you, what do you mean by revival? Well, I think this Pentecost moment, it establishes something of a pattern where there are moments in history when God pours out his spirit in a profound way and thousands come to faith. And it's the, the, the expansion of the people of God is not a kind of linear, linear, just gradual growth. Actually, there are just moments when God works profoundly. And this is the beginning. This is the first one we see. And so as we see this kind of abundant harvest, remember this is a harvest festival, but it's a harvest festival of a different kind, that this is actually, they see the, th the thousands coming to faith. It's a kind of harvest of souls, ultimately. As we see this harvest, it should provoke us to be people who pray for and long for the revival 
moments and that God would work powerfully in our city if we take this seriously. And if we don't do this, if we don't have Pentecost, sometimes we read the Bible and say, what would be missing if we didn't have this chapter of Scripture? Well, actually, I think the church would be infinitely poorer. The church would be fearful. John, who mentioned this in his prayer earlier, they prayed for us to be people who are confident, who are not controlled by fear. As Christians in a culture which many do not share our faith, fear is so easy. Whether it's fear that causes us to withdraw or fear which causes us to assimilate because we don't want to be different. Either way, fear is so often the posture of the people of God. But just see the confidence in Peter as he challenges the, the assembled crowds, those who had bayed for Christ's blood, those who had sneered at him and mocked him. Peter says, you crucified him. He, to the crowds, to a whole city, effectively, he challenges them. That is the confidence that God would want us to have, I believe. And as you invite the work of the Holy Spirit, as you remember that Christ is reigning and that we live under his rule and reign, as we intercede and ask him for his work in us and in our city, I believe we could become the kind of confident people of God who are actively involved in advancing the kingdom. This is a moment of kingdom advancement, kingdom explosion, so to speak. And I believe that God wants us to be involved in that. That Christianity is not passive, it's not a, just a kind of spectator sport, but actually that we all have a part to play in advancing the kingdom. And it comes by being empowered by the Spirit and remembering that Christ is reigning. So let's unpack these ideas. First of all, pursue the work of the Holy Spirit. Pursue the work of the Holy Spirit. Do we, as a people, pursue the work of the Holy Spirit? Remember I said this is a kind of epoch-defining moment. And what is coming really loudly and clearly in this passage is something has changed. When we look at the Old Testament, generally speaking, the Holy Spirit is poured out on individuals. A prophet or a king, we saw that on the weekend away, an anointing is a prayer for the the filling of the Spirit on on the person who's called to lead the nation. But here, Joel, Peter is quoting him, Joel is prophetically looking forward to a time when the Spirit will be poured out on all people. You see that in the, in the, in the verses that he quotes in chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. It says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. Every category of person is listed there, old and young, male and female, servant and, by implication, free person, saying the spirit now is for all people. There is not a kind of spiritual elite who are now filled with the spirit. Actually, God wants to raise up a people who are the temple of the living God, filled with his spirit and able to be his mouthpiece, able to walk in power and confidence through the work of the Holy Spirit. And you just think... If you are back under the old covenant, this is, is, can you imagine kind of almost how jealous they would feel? You know, in a sense, this is, we just take this for granted. Yes, I'm a Christian. I'm therefore filled with the Spirit, and that's true. But just imagine what it would be to be back looking on this moment, looking to the day when the Spirit would be poured out on all people. You know, I can think about how, how they would have heard the promise in Jeremiah 31 that speaks of a time when the Spirit will bring about a change in the hearts of those who are under this new covenant. 
Jeremiah says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the days that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Not like the old covenant. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. He's speaking of a time when he's saying you won't no longer just need to hear the law. We're still teaching in the New Testament. We're still, we're still gathered together to hear his word spoke to us. But their, their hearts are different. Actually, the the law has been written on their hearts. They are experiencing something of the Spirit's work on their hearts, changing them. It's a kind of internal work that we have that they are looking onto and wishing they had. They speak about a a kind of idea that all will receive the Spirit and prophesy. Actually, they longed for this. In um, Numbers 11, Moses has just appointed a series of elders. Should I change microphones? Okay, um, Moses has appointed a series of elders, and uh, and a, c- a couple of people are prophesying. And Aaron comes to Moses and basically says, "Are you aware they're prophesying? You know, you're the prophet here. Why should we stop them?" Kind of thing. And this is Moses's response. But Moses said to him, "Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit on them." Moses says, look, wouldn't it be great if all people were the Lord's prophets? If all people were empowered to speak the truth of God to one another, to be a mouthpiece for the Lord. He's looking forward to this day that Joel is prophesying and we are seeing in Pentecost. And we now, the people of God, are living in, saying all people can experience the work of the Spirit. All people can become a mouthpiece for the living God. What an incredible thing. And then you see this, this then sets the tone for the pattern all the way through the book of Acts. I would encourage you, if you're skeptical of what I'm saying, just read through the whole book of Acts and see how much the work of the Holy Spirit is referenced. I mentioned the first time we looked at this that some people think of the book of Acts as the acts of the Holy Spirit because he is such a principal actor in the events that we see. You see it all the way through. Acts chapter, we saw it in Acts chapter 2. You see in Acts chapter 4, the people of God are gathering and they're praying Uh, They've just been confronted and challenged and told to stop speaking about Christ. And it says, when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You see, in Acts chapter 6, as they appoint the first deacons in the church, basically. And one of the things they say is, pick men who are full of the Holy Spirit. They're saying that they can see the work of God through his spirit in their lives. He can see their character and he can see how, the work, how God is changing them as a result of them walking closely with him. They can see the evidence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. You can see this in uh, Acts chapter 9 when uh, Paul has that Damascus road moment and he encounters Christ and he meets Ananias who's a believer. And one of the first things Ananias does is he prays for him to be filled with the spirit. And this becomes a pattern, actually, just because he's he's prayed to be filled with the Spirit there. Again, in Acts chapter 13, when he's sent out on his missionary journey, they lay their hands on him. It's kind of anointing and a prayer for the work of the Holy Spirit. So it's a kind of regular pattern, an expectation then, that they expect the Holy Spirit to be at work amongst them, and they are praying with that sense of expectation. 
You see in Acts chapter 10, Peter is drawn to um, preach to the Gentiles. At this point, uh, it's just a Jewish thing. And then slowly we see in the book of Acts, it becomes a Gentile thing too, non-Jews. And, uh, and Peter's led to preach to, to the Gentiles. And the first thing he sees is as he's preaching, the Holy Spirit is falling down on the people and they are responding. And he says, we know this is from the Lord because he's working in their hearts. They come to expect the work of the Holy Spirit. And we see this. This is, uh, those of you who are with us, who've been with us for a little while, know this is exactly what we should expect. When we look at um, Ephesians chapter 5 a few weeks ago, we heard that instruction, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. There's a kind of expectation, both as individuals and as a community, that we would be regularly responding to that instruction, that it isn't a kind of one-time thing, that actually we're inviting and asking the Spirit to fill us and to work in us as individuals and as a community. And ultimately, you have to see that Jesus promised this. He promised it in Acts chapter 1 before he left, but he also promised it before he left his disciples. In John chapter 16, he says to the disciples, nevertheless, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit there. Imagine yourself as a disciple. You've been with Jesus for three years. And he says, you know what? It's good that I'm going away from you because actually then the Holy Spirit can come to you. Why? He's saying it's even better for you that that you would have the Holy Spirit with you. Perhaps that hints at the idea that it's not just Jesus' teaching that they needed, that they needed an empowerment, a change of their hearts which would come from the Holy Spirit. So what I'm trying to argue, brothers and sisters, is do you see the indispensability of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer? Do we see that we need this? If you look at the Pentecost and go, yeah, okay, that's pretty cool, but then kind of move on, then you've missed something. So no, we need the Spirit's work in our lives. John Stott uh, said this, there can be no life without the life giver. He's talking about the indispensability of the Holy Spirit. No understanding without the Spirit of truth. No fellowship without the unity of the Spirit. No Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit. And no effective witness without his power. Do we recognize the extent of the Spirit's work in our lives? So what does the Holy Spirit do? Why does this matter? Let's go through it. One, the Spirit glorifies Christ. You see this in this um, moment in Pentecost. The, what, what is happening, the uh, disciples... Verse 11, telling in their own tongues the mighty works of God. They are declaring the mighty works of God. They're declaring the majesty of God. Perhaps they're praising him. It's not exactly clear. But what this points to is the fact that the Holy Spirit is actually all about enabling the people of God to worship and glorify Christ. The Holy Spirit has a kind of spotlight ministry on lifting up Christ One writer put it like this, his primary role is the spotlight ministry that is is shining the light onto Christ wherever he is. It means we don't actually go in and say, I'm really, I'm coming to church, I'm really anticipating an experience with the Holy Spirit. Instead we go, I'm coming to worship the living God, I'm coming to glorify his name, Holy Spirit, would you come and help me? Would you help and enliven our hearts and bring a spirit of worship in my heart? That is what the Holy Spirit wants to do. He wants us to help us together to lift up Christ, to have hearts on fire with worship and love for Christ. 
Isn't that exactly why in Ephesians 5, uh, after the instruction to be filled with the Spirit, Paul goes on to talk about singing psalms and spiritual songs. The natural outworking of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life is worship. If you don't worship Christ, then we can be fairly sure the Holy Spirit is not working in your life. Equally, every time you worship Christ, every time you feel genuine affection and desire for Christ, I would say that's a work of the Holy Spirit in you, that God is working to change and shape your heart. So he glorifies Christ. The second thing the Spirit does is he communicates the love of the Father to us, not just in an intellectual way, but in a deep, felt way. Romans 8, Paul says, The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again, Rather, the Spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit you received, brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. We cry, Abba, Father, like the way a child or a baby might cry for their dad. It's a sense of deep sonship. A sense as you know, as you know, as you know, that you are the Lord's. Just as Luke began this service saying, the Father says, you are mine, The work of the Holy Spirit is to give us that sense of assurance that we belong to God. Now, we can know that intellectually. We say we can believe the the truths and the promises of Scripture that say if you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness, that if you put your faith in Christ, that you are His. But there's also something of the Spirit's work in giving us that deep assurance that we cry, Abba, Father, that we know we are His. One writer, uh, Thomas Goodwin, a Puritan writer from 500 years ago or so, was a, a brilliant Bible scholar, describes this, what he calls extraordinary assurance. And he describes a man and his little child, his son, walking down the road, and they're walking hand in hand, and the child knows that he is the child of his father, and he knows that his father loves him. And he rejoices in that, and he's happy in it. There's no uncertainty about it. But suddenly the father, moved by some impulse, takes hold of that child and picks him up, fondles him in his arms, kisses him, embraces him, showers his love upon him, and then puts him down again, and they go on walking together. That is it. The child knew before that his father loved him, and he knew that he was his child. But oh, this loving embrace, this extra outpouring of love, this unusual manifestation of it, that is the kind of thing, the spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Brothers and sisters, you need to know deep within your heart that you are a child of God. It is that sense of assurance that will give you the confidence to proclaim Christ when everyone around you thinks you're a nutter. The the, the ability to withstand criticism comes from the assurance that you are a child of God. And the Spirit mediates that truth to our hearts, that we can rejoice and celebrate that reality. There are moments in my life where I need to draw near to God again and ask the Spirit to work in my heart to remind me and to bring that sense of sonship in my heart. Thirdly, the Spirit sanctifies us. He changes us. The Christian life so often feels like a self-improvement project But the Bible makes it clear that actually the change that takes place in our life, we work for it, but God works in us. And his work is far greater than anything we can do in our own strength. Think about the list of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Sometimes you read that list and you just think of it as a to-do list. Actually, remember he's describing fruits of the Spirit, saying this is the work, this is the fruit, the outworking of the Spirit's work in your life. The simple reality is if we want to be changed by Christ, it begins with abiding in Him, by praying and enjoying fellowship with the Son, 
remembering the promises of who God is, and asking him to change us. We must realize the biblical change project is one that we are doing under the authority of God and empowered and with his spirit will work in us. Sometimes that will be fast and momentary, so to speak. There's something you struggle with and you experience that God's work in your life and you don't struggle with it anymore. Sometimes it will be slow. Sometimes God doesn't choose not to remove the thorn in your flesh that you struggle with that same temptation for a long time. Actually, but even then, I believe that what God wants is the same thing, is that same posture of dependence. The outworking of the conviction that it is the Holy Spirit who's at work in you, changing you, should push us to our knees to walk in a posture of dependence, to say, I need you, God, would you change me? That is, that is the, the posture of the people of God. The Spirit makes us his mouthpiece. You must see that, in a sense, the Spirit's work is not just to give us a kind of warm and fuzzy feeling in this room, that we go away saying, isn't it great that I'm a child of God? That is good. But actually, the Spirit always leads us out. Even in this moment, I love the way the, book, the, the moment of Pentecost begins in the upper room, but somehow they find themselves in the temple. And I can only imagine it's that in some way they feel something of an unction of the Spirit that just leads them out into the, into the temple courts to make this moment public. The Spirit enables us to be witnesses Many of us struggle with our witness. Many of us feel we cannot be witnesses to Christ. Well, the answer is that we need to turn to Christ and say, fill me with your spirit, Lord. Give me a boldness and a confidence that enables me to overcome the fears that I naturally feel. The spirit bestows gifts. You notice in this Acts chapter two, it speaks about the last days. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That phrase, last days, it describes the period from the resurrection until Christ's return. And we are in that period, and we're in the same period as the period of the book of Acts. What I'm saying is, there is no indication in the New Testament that the gifts of the Spirit have ceased, that God continues to pour out His Spirit. This, is, this, this moment in Pentecost is a moment where Christ is saying, I will continue to pour out my Spirit until the day I return. It says, and it, um, he talks about before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day saying this this is an invitation. He will continue to pour out his spirit on his people until he returns. Now, when we think about the gifts of the spirit, it's right that we don't over-focus on those gifts. This moment of Pentecost, you could get really obsessed with the speaking in tongues and get kind of on a bit of a sidetrack and miss the point that this is all about Christ extending and displaying his reign. So we can't over-focus on the gifts, and even when we allow the gifts, we must do it in a biblical and proper way that doesn't create disunity and that follow the biblical safeguards around the gifts. But neither should we under-focus on the gifts. The gifts are there to edify and strengthen the church. The reason why God pours out his spirit on the church is to strengthen her. So we desire the gifts not because we think of them as some kind of extra kind of power in some way for ourselves, but rather we desire the gifts because we want to see the church built up. We see the church strengthened. You saw this. We're talking about prophecy. Here is referencing prophecy. Those of you who are on the weekend away saw that Ruth Haslam brought a word to the church and said, look, I sense that the Lord's saying this. We've had one act closing and this is our second act and to approach this second act with a sense of faith and expectancy. And you could see the, the faith in the room rising. The sense of expectation and anticipation in the people of God responding to that word. That is one illustration of how prophecy done rightly, done always in line with Scripture, can build up and strengthen the church. 
in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. I don't want to, um, don't want you to take my word for it. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. prophesy. Do, we, do we earnestly desire the spiritual gifts? Do you desire more of the Spirit's work in your life? Do we want to be changed by Christ? Do we want to be a mouthpiece for him? Do we pursue the Spirit's work? Why, why might we fail to do this? Well, one idea is I don't, we, sometimes it's because we don't like the idea of comprehensive takeover. This idea of being filled with the Spirit implies a kind of comprehensive takeover by Christ where he takes hold of your heart and your desires and every part of who you are. And some of us say, you know what, I really like kind of superficial religion. <laughs> I really like just a kind of layer, a veneer of Christ. Some, I'm not saying you literally say those words, but unconsciously, I really just like applying the label of Christ or maybe going to church, but I don't really want, the, I'm not drawn to this idea of comprehensive takeover, of Christ coming over and taking every, over every part of your life, including your desires. And I wanted to say, if, if that is your vision of Christianity, you have a counterfeit version. Christ always desires to come in and take hold of who you are, to reshape your desires. Repentance often means just changing your attitude, changing that sense of bitterness that's grown up towards somebody else or that sense of um, ungra- ingratitude or self-pity that you're, that you're kind of going on around your head. That Christ wants to take hold of every part of your life, welcoming in the Spirit to work. Second of all, some of us, I think we just don't like mess or mystery. There is an element to which the work of the Holy Spirit, it's a bit messy, And what I mean by that is, you see in this moment, it's a kind of bewildering scene. 120 people all praising God in different languages, and, you know, that's kind of a bit overwhelming. It's certainly not kind of this nice, ordered meeting. You see later on in in Acts chapter 10, when Paul is, um, sorry, uh, Peter is drawn to preach to the Gentiles. He wasn't planning to do that. God spoke to him and led him. There's a sense of unpredictability and responsiveness to working with the direction and leading of the Holy Spirit. But there's also mystery here. There's some parts of the work of the Holy Spirit that cannot be fully rationalized. And what I mean by that is, why does the Spirit pour himself out in that way and, and so that some people have a profound experience with him and say, I really felt the Holy Spirit. And other people say, I don't know what you're talking about. And you kind of have to almost just trust at that moment that the Holy Spirit's at work in you. And so there's a, there's a mystery there. You have to be willing to hold on to that mystery. Some of us have perhaps seen the gifts exercised badly. I was in a prayer meeting once where I could feel someone pushing my head, trying to make me fall down in the spirit, fall down in the spirit. <laughs> and I was like, you are not, nope, that's not going to happen. <laughs> um, my point is that there are dangers here. There are people who've abused the spiritual gifts and taught into them badly and operated wrongly in them. But I don't think we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. If any of that thing, that should push us to the text and say, can we really see the gifts here? And my absolute conclusion is yes, we can. In the pages of the New Testament, there's a full expectation of the work of the Holy Spirit. And can we see them exercised rightly? Do we test and weigh words that are shared against Scripture? Another reason is some of us just haven't seen any evidence of the supernatural work of Christ. You say, I haven't really seen this. Well, I would start by saying, if you're a Christian... If you worship Christ, you have seen God's work in your life. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul essentially says, no one can say Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit's work in them. 
So if you are a follower of Christ, you've already experienced that supernatural work in you. And so as we then kind of say, God, would, you, would, you, would we see more? Would we see more of the work of the Spirit? In a sense, all we're doing is saying, God, would, you come and see, would we come and see the same? Christ, would you come and work in us? But also it means when we sit in a tension where we say our experience doesn't match up to the Bible, we can do one of two things. We can either kind of try and reinterpret the Bible in light of our experience, or we can seek to raise our experience in line with the Bible. It's such a danger of lowering your interpretation of the Bible to your experience. And I, I don't want to do that, brothers and sisters. I instead want to sit in something of the tension and to say, look, I see these gifts in operation in the New Testament. I perhaps don't see them in the same extent as they do in the book of Acts. And I think part of that is just because we are looking at a 30-year kind of snapshot so, you know, we can't expect necessarily the same volume of spiritual outpouring that we see in the book of Acts. Healing is around every corner. But yet, I want to, in humility and in obedience, step out in faith and ask God to move and to ask him to move in power in our midst. Maybe some of us don't want this because we just don't want to be weird. It reminds me a little bit like... Um, Mikal, for those of you on the weekend away, who was proud and didn't want her husband, David, worshipping so exuberantly. Respectability, I believe, is, one of the, en- is the great enemy of genuine spirituality. The, the pursuit of respectability is the enemy of genuine spirituality. I'm trying to be respectable, I'm trying for people to kind of see a kind of normalized vision of Christianity, we might dial down the weirdness, but it's actually the weirdness <laughs> that is where the, kind of, the power is. And after all, we are weird. We worship the king of kings, but all around us people think it's crazy. So let's not try and dial that down to pretend that anything else. Some of us are just naturally weird and you just have to go with that. Some of us, I think it's just genuine unbelief here. It's just unbelief and we need to repent of that. And for some of us, particularly in a context like this one, there's a real danger of intellectual pride and spiritual pride. See, to pursue the work of the Holy Spirit comes from a posture of dependence, comes from a posture of saying, God, I desperately need you. I cannot do the Christian life on my own. That is what pushes us to our knees. And so we prayerfully seek the work of the Spirit in our lives in a posture of day-to-day dependence, asking God to fill you with his Spirit, with his Spirit. asking him to change your heart, saying, God, I need you. From a posture of hunger, saying, God, would you work amongst us in the family? Kind of saying, don't we need strengthening as a people of God? Have we got it all? Are we there? (laughs) No. No, we need God's work amongst us. And even with a sense of expectation, as we see the book of Acts and we see God at work, perhaps for some of us we need to raise our expectations for the Spirit's work amongst us. To remember, yes, the Spirit is sovereign. We cannot manipulate God or kind of whip this up in a human way. But neither do we let that paralyze us. Actually, we look at the pattern of God's work, of him pouring out his Spirit, and so we invite him and ask for him to be a work amongst us. So there's a pursuit of the Holy Spirit. There's also a living under and a declaration of the reign of Christ. It would be so easy to be caught up in the moment of Pentecost, to see this mass of voices and pursue the work of the Spirit in a kind of superficial way. But remembering this is a moment of declaration of the reign of Christ. So too, it sets a pattern that our lives would reflect 
that rain. See, Peter, Peter's central point to this gathered thousands of people is you have seen Christ resurrected. Actually, you saw his miracles and you crucified him anyway. And God was planning, planning it all along. He was superintending it for his purposes. You've seen him resurrected. You saw that death could not hold him. This was prophesied by David hundreds of years previously. And you know that David can't be talking about himself because you've got his tomb in Jerusalem. So he's not, you know, you've seen his tomb. He's not talking about himself there. Actually, all of this points to the fact that Christ is reigning. The central proclamation of the book of Acts is not Jesus died for your sins. As important as that is, the central claim that the disciples make is Christ is risen and he is Lord and he is reigning, so you must repent and turn to him. And that is our message, brothers and sisters. What do we mean by Christ is reigning? Well, it means that we believe that Christ is in charge, that he is the ultimate authority, that he is the Lord of lords. He is the rightful Lord of all. And so we respond with obedience. As we walk out obedience to Christ, we display and declare to the world with our lives that Christ is reigning. But also we seek his direction and leading for the church. And I was thinking about moments in, as elders we've prayed and, and sought the Lord's leading. And one time I can think of when we were a, a smaller and we were thinking about whether to go to a second service or not. And in quick succession, two people brought a prophetic word to the gathering of Isaiah 54, where it speaks of um, enlarging the place of your tent and letting the curtains of your habitations be stretched out, lengthening your cords and strengthening your stakes. And we took those two sequential words. I'm pretty sure neither of those women knew what we were thinking about with the second service and said, actually, yeah, we feel like the Lord is, is, is giving us a nudge and we began a second service. And there'll be moments like that as we seek the direction of God for our people. So we see that Christ is in charge, but it also says Christ's reign is not fully experienced on this earth. That even as we say Christ is reigning, we accept that the Lord allows people to mock and jeer at him, just as we see in this moment of Pentecost as they accuse the disciples of being drunk. That we see sin is still at work in the world. But notice that it, there's a promise here. A day is coming when Christ, Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, but a day is coming when he will make his enemies a footstool. It's speaking of a kind of moment of triumph as Christ, the conquering hero, returns to judge the living and the dead and ultimately to judge and set, remove from his presence to eternal punishment his enemies, to triumph over his enemies. What is this? So we hear this call, this reality of Christ's reign, but what does it mean to live under that reign, to display that with our lives? What difference does it make? Well, I said it, it means obedience but not just a kind of superficial obedience, not just a kind of like, well, I'm a Christian, so I better stop doing that because I know that's not in line with Christ's will, but an obedience from the heart, a joyful and willing surrender. The question as we read this declaration of Christ's reign is, does my life look like one who is willingly and joyfully surrendering to Christ in every area? Christ doesn't just want an obedience that is superficial, or begrudging even, Christ would call us to a heartfelt obedience. An obedience that ultimately comes from a place of trust. Ask yourself, do you trust him? Do you believe that his ways lead to life? 
The Christian life will involve lots of moments of hardship, lots of moments of surrender. But the reason we're able to keep walking in obedience is because we believe and believe deep down that Christ is trustworthy and he leads us to life. Ask yourself that question. But the ultimate mark of living under Christ's reign, the outflow of this trust, I would argue, is peace. It's no coincidence that in John chapter 14, when Jesus is speaking to the disciples of the work of the Holy Spirit, he promises them peace. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The reason, the way we will be able to see that you really trust Christ, the way we will really see that you live under his reign is that you experience a peace. And not a peace that comes from just having all your ducks in a row and all your life working, but a peace in the midst of the disorder and the mess of life. A peace that says, even in this mess, even as I see sin working its way, being sinned against or sinning against others, even in the midst of that, I believe that Christ is on the throne, that Christ is Lord, and he will use even the suffering in my life for his good purposes in my life. Christ is working in the mess in your life and is working through the mess. Sometimes you'll know why that is. Sometimes you won't know why. You might say, well, how can he be sovereign? How can he be reigning when I see this in my life or that in my life? And actually, that's precisely the moment that you need to remember that he is refining you and shaping you and he has not left you and he is still reigning. And he intends good for you. That is the source of the peace. That is the difference that knowing that Christ is reigning can make in our lives. So we're there, those who pursue the work of the Holy Spirit, we declare and live under the reign of Christ, and finally, we long for and pray for revival. As we see this moment of Pentecost, and we see these thousands coming to faith in Christ, we see this harvest festival, literally a harvest of thousands of souls, Pentecost is setting a pattern for revival. What do we mean by revival? Well, we say God, we see God at work in ordinary ways, seeing him bringing folk to faith, and we see a steady trickle of five to ten people coming to faith over the last few years each year, and we give thanks for that. But there are moments, and this is one of them, and there are moments throughout history where God has worked in a profound way, far beyond any human explanation, an outpouring of his spirit that draws the multitudes to himself, that often works in the church and beyond that. And Pentecost sets a a pattern for this revival. Jonathan Edwards, who was a pastor, theologian, a writer, who lived through a revival in the mid-18th century, describes it like this. From the fall of man to our day, the work of redemption in its effect has mainly been carried on by remarkable or perhaps extraordinary communications of the Spirit of God. Though there is a more constant influence of God's Spirit always, saying, look, though we see the Holy Spirit at work always, in some degree attending his ordinances, yet the way in which the greatest things have been done towards carrying on this work always have been by remarkable effusions, or we might say outpourings, at special seasons of mercy. Brothers and sisters, as you see this Pentecost moment, you might feel tempted to go out into the streets of London and preach the gospel. And there's some of you, the activists amongst us, and I would say I would resonate with that and I would want to join you there. But actually, there's something about this moment that says this is far beyond what we could do. That this is a 
a profound work of the Holy Spirit, a reminder that the Spirit is sovereign and He is working through to draw men to Himself. And actually the natural outworking of seeing the moment of Pentecost is to be people of prayer, to be people who long for and pray for God's work amongst us in a profound way. Do we pray? Are we willing to pray, asking God to move? Are we on our knees praying for God's move in our city? I believe that's the call for the people of God. It'll be a mark of health if we see that. I think of uh, the story of the Welsh revival of the 20, earlier 20th century. A man called Evan Roberts, who was born in the late 1800s, went, left school at the age of 11. An unschooled man, well, until 11, he was after that, just went down the mines, a Sunday school teacher, loved the Bible, prayed for years. In 1904, he began to be awakened in the middle of the night, experiencing sweet communion with God, just sweet times of fellowship with the Lord. And then he started to feel a God-sent vigor, an urgency to preach the gospel and to call people back to God. And so he and some other friends of a similar kind of background set up these meetings and started calling people to repentance. And God did a profound work in a matter of months, perhaps less than two years, as he called the people of God back to, as he called people back to God. Uh, in the first week of meetings, they'd seen 60 people give their lives to God, and their movement exploded across the area of South Wales that they were in, till about 100,000 people came to faith. It had a tra- a, a, almost a transforming effect on the local community. People said they saw less gambling, less drunkenness. Some of you heard Andrew give the illustration a few months ago of even the, the pit ponies in the coal mines had to learn to respond to different instructions as the men were no longer swearing and cussing in, towards their ponies. Saying God's work ripple effect, had this ripple effect on culture. So people say, why only two years? And in response to the, this idea of revival, Evan Roberts simply said, the movement is not of me, it is of God. I would not dare to try and direct it. People of God, are we willing to ask God to move sovereignly for our city? We ask God for his work in us as individuals. We say, God, we need you. <laughs> God, would you change us? Would you enliven our hearts where we see a lack of hunger and desire for him? God, would you change us? We ask God for his work amongst us that we might be mouthpieces for the gospel, that we might become bold witnesses like Peter, willing to say to, them, to the people and challenge them, to confront them, just as Christ is confronting our culture. We pray saying, Lord, would you show and display the reign of Christ in my life? Would I live under the rain, your reign? Would I experience that peace that comes with knowing that you are in control and that you are sovereign and that you're in charge? And then we pray for revival. We say, God, would you move beyond us? <laughs> would you move profoundly in a way that we could ne- never do on all of ourselves? This is our calling, brothers and sisters. As we see this profound work, we must become people of prayer. That's why we gather for things like upper room, for pre-service prayer, but it's only, those things are just ways of doing it. Ultimately, it's about a posture of your life that just is really, in essence, the, the posture which says, come Holy Spirit, come Lord Jesus, come and take hold of every part of my life. That is the calling for the people of God. That's our posture. Let's pray.